So firstly, Mick established his lead. What a trick you are. I'm after around. winning my second quiz in a row on my return and you haven't stopped be bullshit members. This is absolute no, nonsense. No, no, no. Celebrate Boo. my greatness. Yeah. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. All right, delighted to be joined by uh, a man very familiar to, uh, to most of our viewers and listeners here in Ireland, Barry Hearn, the president of the promotions company Matrim Sport. And of course, Barry's autobiography, My Life, Knockouts, Snookers, Bullseyes, Tight Lines and Sweet Deal was released on uh, April 28th and it's available now on Amazon and in all good bookstores. An evening with Barry as well, Tuesday, May 3rd, upcoming at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. Barry will uh, tell some stories about this new book, no doubt, and uh, sign a few copies for fans as well in Sheffield. Barry, uh, thanks a million for joining us. Um, pleasure, pleasure. Great to chat to you as always. And, and I mean... I've heard recent stories about why you decided to do this book. I think, I know your daughter had uh, had twin boys quite recently yeah. and maybe leaving a legacy for, for them and for yourself was, was one of the reasons. Well, that the principal reason was that, you know, because being a lazy bucker, you know, it's too much work for me. I have other things to do, but my daughter put me under pressure. But actually, to be fair, I've really enjoyed the process because it's quite, you know, I do a lot of fishing and when I'm on my own, I take a tape recorder and it's taken me three and a half years to put down as many of the stories as I can put down. Um, and I found it quite refreshing to do. And it's made me chuckle and, it, and I hope I've told the truth. So hopefully we'll produce something that people will enjoy. That's the, that's the game. But more importantly, from the Hearn family, I have four grandchildren and they'll read this book and hopefully they'll get some idea of, what we do, how we do it, and what type of people we are. You know, that's important for me to leave that as a legacy. Um, I know you've had a you've had a couple of health scares that you might touch on in the book as well, mm. like the, the heart attack back in 2002. Yeah. And we were all, you, you, you concerned a lot of us, I think, when when, when you had another in, uh, in yeah. April of 2020. Like, how are you feeling now? How, are, how is your health? Well, look, tomorrow I'm going to open the bat for Essex against Surrey. You know, so I'm not, I don't take a backward step, you know, and uh, of course I try and look after myself as much as I can, but we're all human every now and again, you know, the takeaway looks excellent and the, uh, you know, the beer looks good, you know, so I like to enjoy my life and I think we mustn't take ourselves too seriously. We're not, I'm not stupid about it, I try and keep in shape, but uh, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, at the moment, but who knows? This world is such a screwed up place. And we've all gone through COVID and all that. And, you know, families have had disasters. You know, so you, you mustn't feel sorry for yourself in anything. We're, we're here. We're going to make the most of it. I certainly want to get into some of the, the, the uh, uplifting and funny stories in the book as well. But I, I, like when you talk about your, your health scares, uh, like it was a, a great piece I was reading quite recently in, in the, the Sunday Independent, uh, a writer called El Gordon was, was talking about losing her dad um, mm. and, and the impact that had on her, you know, that, that final day with him, the smells of the hospital room and, and that sort of thing. Like, I, I know you lost your dad, Morris, uh, when he was young, you know, only 44 yeah. years of age. Um, and look, I, I don't want to write your epitaph here, but, but <laughs> heart attacks and moments like that in your own life yeah. must, must, must make you reflect, I guess. I think, yeah, I think as a, as a youngster, you grow up waiting for it. I mean, my father was 44, his father was 43, and his father was 45. So, you know, this wasn't a good advert for longevity. Um, I don't know why. I've been, I've been spared all that. But I grew up in that atmosphere of waiting. So it didn't really have to come as a surprise when I had my first one. And the second one was, as far as I was concerned, was very little anyway. You know, they just think they stick a few stents in you, you come out, you know, with a few more reasons not to go through the 
metal detectors at airports and and you're often on yeah I'm, I'm just incapable probably immature i don't really want to i just don't take any notice of it uh, other than you know I'm, and i ran marathons all around the world I've, I've always been in the gym most days i keep you know try and watch my weight things i do the sensible things i mean i used to smoke i don't smoke you know there's only so many things you can do and the rest of it's up to god and you actually get closer to God way. So like, when he when he decides, that's my end, that's my time. No one else. When he decides, it's my time. And up to that, I'm going to give every respect to everyone. And I'm not even going to. I'm not. I don't worry about it for a second. Even you know, even when I was having, there was a great line when I had my first heart attack where I woke my wife up at five o'clock in the morning and told her I'm having a heart attack. And my wife said, let's give it 20 minutes and see how you are. <laughs> and then I said, well, no, get me an ambulance. And she went, I can't dial 999. And I couldn't breathe. And, you know, was, you know, people will know. I said, why can't you dial 999? She said, it's only for emergencies. <laughs> so then you realise I'm married to a woman with a sense of humour. But, you know, <laughs> That'll keep you young. She actually, but... woke, she actually woke Eddie up and Eddie had to phone the ambulance. She wouldn't make, she wouldn't make the phone call. But... <laughs> Look, you know, we can't take ourselves too seriously. I mean, I know it sounds easy to say, I'm having a great life. I've had a great life. When the good Lord decides it's over, I'll go peacefully. Before that, I'm giving 110% every day. Absolutely. Fair play. This, this description, Barry, as, as a working class hero, I mean, I know back in your, your childhood and teenage years, you would have worked in, in different odd jobs, washing cars, picking fruit, vegetables. You, you obviously had an eye for entrepreneurship from, from the early days. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to make money. I did. I wasn't jealous of other people. I just wanted the same. You know, I saw the big houses at the top of the hill, you know, and I thought, why, you know, why haven't we got a gardener? And then I went out, car, well, why haven't we got a car? But I wasn't, you don't get jealous as a child. Children are happy. You know, they're happy with love in the family. It doesn't matter about material things. Until you get older, you know, probably 10, 11, 12, and I looked over my shoulder and said, I want some of this. And because I wasn't a genius, the only way to do it was to work extra hard. And I was good at that because I got, I suppose I've got a small brain. You know, someone says, you know, it's like Forrest Gump. You know, someone says, run, I just run. Someone says, go to work, I just go to work. And I don't go, I don't finish until it's done. You know, when people say to me now, I'm supposed to be a smart business man they say how do i improve productivity in my company or in my life and i say start an hour earlier and finish an hour later that'll work and it does you know just keep things simple and then just enjoy it you know i mean if you don't if you have a passion if you have a passion for something like what you're doing now what i'm doing now you know we're getting paid for this are you sure i mean it's just wonderful you know we're lucky people so don't don't take it for granted Absolutely, it's a it's a great attitude to take. Um, but when you talk about, about sliding doors moments in in, in a person's life, uh, and this is something that you start the book on, but I just wanted to reference like uh, had the pleasure of speaking with with Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan and these guys over the years. Uh, there was a great line in in one of Jimmy White's books where he talked about Steve Davis. Uh, and obviously compared his own lifestyle back in the 80s to, to that of Steve. And he said, yeah. Steve will happily sit in his own room and play chess and board games, whereas I'd be out somewhere causing murder. I like to dabble. He likes to scrabble. Like yeah. that, that moment, you, <laughs> like when you became, it's a great line, but like when you became Steve Davis's manager in 1976, he goes on to win that, that first world title, I think in 81. Like, I know you opened the book with this. So clearly this was a sliding was, doors moment when you met Steve Davis. Totally right. I mean, obviously I met Steve in 75, signed a contract the only contract we've ever signed in 40 odd years was in 78 when he turned pro and obviously 80 
won. My life changed. His life changed. Snooker changed when he won his first world championships. So that was the divided moment. That was the defining moment in my life. And I probably wouldn't be talking to you now without that moment. And that, that means I'll always owe a debt to Steve particularly, to the Crucible, to Sheffield, where it all started. Where it, but now, to be honest with you, I've been pretty smart since then. I've done okay. But you all need a start, don't you? You need that little bit of luck to start you off, and that day gave me that. So when you look back on it, and even today, I still get, you know, when I come to Sheffield, I still get little tingly feelings on the way. It's 45 years I've been coming here, 40 odd years. It's amazing. It's amazing what it does to you. So, yeah, I don't forget, but I still enjoy. Like I think I think you described uh, Steve before as, as almost like a, a big issue seller, but he's one of those great ambassadors of the sport. Like when you look at someone, you know, from the island of Ireland here that we all really appreciated was obviously yeah. Alex Hurricane Higgins, the, the yeah, total, total opposite. Like how important though were, were personalities was, like Alex? It, it was important to have a mixture, wasn't it? I mean, you wouldn't want to have a hundred Alexes in a room. One was more than enough. You know, and there are times when uh, we would love each other and there were times when we would be squaring up to each other, you know, when we were young. There's two very different personalities. Steve was purely, Steve was the first professional snooker player. <coughs> when I say professional, he was the first one who treated snooker 100% as his job, as his life. So he was totally dedicated. And that for that reason, he had a big advantage over his work ethic, his practice ethic, which means he had more consistency in his game. Alex was capable of playing shots that no one had even thought of, but he wasn't as consistent a winner of frames as Steve Davis and subsequently Stephen Hendry, etc. You know, so the standard went up, but Alex was still one of the main reasons why snooker became fashionable because he was exciting. He was a personality and you sat on the edge of your chair because you didn't know what he was going to do next. But you knew you were going to be entertained. And, you know, and you, you have to love him for that. I mean, Alex asked me so many times for me to manage him, but it, it just didn't fit into my structure of, if you like, cleansing the game to be a, a commodity for, for big corporations which and governments, which we needed at that time. You know, I couldn't send Alex out as an ambassador to China, for example, because I wouldn't know what on earth was going to happen when he got out there. Whereas I could send Steve Davis, Terry Griffiths, Dennis Taylor, those type of guys, because they understood the ethos and, and the plan we had. And Alex wanted to be part of it, but really wasn't really capable of being part of it. But we still needed him enormously to spread the gospel and the excitement of the game, if that makes sense, you know? I think for, for young people nowadays, Barry, it's probably hard to fathom just how big snooker was back in the 80s when you've, you know, 18 and a half million people watching that black ball final in 85. Uh, you've, you know, snooker players, just, just I guess, resident names that everyone uh, knew back then. Yeah. I guess two, two-pronged question for you. Do you think snooker, snooker can get back to those days and maybe... Like even for myself, watching things like you know Drive to Survive, the Formula One uh, series yeah. on Netflix. Like, yeah. do, do you look at things like that and think, "Geez, this could be something for for snooker or for darts that we could make these guys household yeah. names again." Well, firstly, snooker will never get back to because it, it's about the surrounding sporting arenas as well. In the early eighties, snooker was bigger than football. You know, there was a lot of crowd trouble in football. There was a quite of anti-football feeling. The snooker prize money in the in early 80s was bigger than the European golf tour. 
and it's not now by a country mile. So snooker lost its way a little bit, but also other sports. I mean, football got their act together, cleaned it up with not so many hooligans. Golf had this wonderful brand value, which snooker was quite late to jump on that brand wagon brand value wagon, you know? So will it get as big? Will we ever see 18 and a half million people? No, no, of course. The, the, the broadcast landscape has changed. You know, we're, we're into sports streaming. We're into different type of broadcasters. We're into OTT networks, you know, pay as you go, all this sort of stuff. So it's a different world. So we can't compare it. So part that. Now, when you look at Netflix Drive to Survive, things like that, that is the future. And that's what we're looking at. Matra Media is our production company who does all the boxing, things like that, and are very involved in shoulder programming, enhancing. So, you know, suddenly we're, we're, suddenly we're talking to TikTok, you know, for snooker. I mean, where did that come from, you know? Suddenly we're looking at Netflix, or well, zone being the Netflix of sport, if you like, you know? Suddenly we're seeing, goodness me, there's a lot of fans in America. We never knew. We never scratched the surface. Now all our events are on in, in the States, on the zone streaming service, and we're seeing that we've got fans. And that triggers off different commercial exploitation parts of that. Canada, the same. Brazil, the same. So the world is much easier to communicate with, but you have to take with you a package that is presentable, technically at the top end. Ayrton Cerner's programme is a great, I mean, that that really changed Formula One in my mind. And sort of basketball is the same and doing different snooker is, is coming on that same platform. And they're going to be doing some snooker programs. Already we do a lot in Weibo and in China where we spread the brand. And I think it's just beginning. So I think the future is really bright, really bright, because we've already got 500 million viewers worldwide watching the World Snooker Championships. That's a good base to start from, but we've got to go into that younger market and that take advantage of new age technology to make sure that we maximise our revenues. And it's funny, Barry, as well, like I was trying to think before speaking to you, you know, if I was a sports promoter, what, what sort of attitude would I take? And I found the great line that, that you said before, where you said your dog could sell tickets to the World Cup final, but how do you get 7,000 people coming to the darts at Wolverhampton on a Tuesday? That's when you find out how good you are. Like, That's exactly right. This attitude is important. Of course it is, because, I mean, darts is a great example of where we've gone in and actually gone in right at the bottom and had the chance to get it get it right in bases, you know. The snooker's been around quite a long time. It's been up, it's been down, it's been up, it's been down. Now it's up again. But there's always another level to go to. So complacency is the biggest killer. You know, if you start thinking you've cracked it, that's the day you start going backwards. So you always set different targets. I set different profit targets, different prize money targets, different social media targets, you know, different reach targets. But it's all a game. And you play like you're playing if you was playing a sport. When you run a business, you play it the same way. I'll play to win. I'll play to destroy my opposition, to outmaneuver everybody and to win. And I judge my winnings on price, money levels for players, profits for the company and various things. You know, so you don't ever take second best, but you do appreciate that you're not going to win every argument. But you've got to be a lot more creative in today's market and you've got to understand your target market. Snooker's got quite an older demographic profile. So the real job is to bring in the younger people. And to do that, we have to bring in younger technology. Why are we talking to you on off the ball? It's a beginning, isn't it? 
And it, we should do. You're involved in sport. You love snooker, but you love lots of sport. And off the ball is, you know, is a, a decent size operation for your market. And we want to be part of that. So, you know, we're learning and earning of you and you're learning and earning of us it's a great relationship as long as we all get bigger and that's where you set your targets in and you make sure that everyone's motivated and rewarded for hitting those targets I'm sure a lot of uh, these off the ball listeners and viewers today will be uh, desperate to pick up a copy of this book. I, I just want to touch on a couple of those anecdotes from, from this book, Barry, because some of them are just uh, quite incredible and no doubt will encourage many of our uh, listeners to, to pick up a copy. Uh, one in particular, like you, you talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan as someone, I mean, 38 ranking titles, six world titles. I know you've named a couple of your, your stray grey hairs after, after Ronnie uh, yeah, yeah. with the, the trouble he's caused you. But maybe, maybe tell us the story about uh, the 16 year old Ronnie O'Sullivan and uh, you're, you're quite, quite strong strange method in terms of uh, well, forcing Ronnie to go pro. Yeah, I mean, people will know in business you have to use different techniques and different tactics to achieve your objectives, and some of them are weird. And, and this was particularly weird because I was you, – you wouldn't imagine seeing such a nice old guy like me now, but I was very unpopular with the governing body, the WPBSA, because I was a bit of a renegade and I did things that they didn't approve of. I'm sure they were right sometimes not to like me. But when it came to my looking after players, sometimes that dislike of me overflowed onto the player, which was unfair on the player. Ronnie O'Sullivan was slightly under the age of being allowed in, but was such a talent that the game was crying out for this genius to be included in the professional ranks. But the WPBSA in those days wouldn't let him in. They were strictly sticking to the letter of the law. So we arranged a meeting where I went up to see the WPBSA board and you could feel the animosity in the room. They didn't like me, simple as that. Uh, you know, right or wrong, they didn't like me. And I actually turned around to them and, and when, it, when, it, when I was making no progress on getting Ronnie fast-tracked into the professional game, I said, gentlemen, I think we all know what's going on here. I said, you don't like me. So I have a suggestion for you. And I dropped my trousers. Then I dropped my underwear. And my hairy ass was exposed to them. I leant over a tree and said, if you want to fuck anyone, fuck me, but don't fuck the kid. And of course, they can imagine Jeff Folds, John Spencer, all these, their faces were like, it just threw them completely. And then Jeff Folds had a little bit of a stutter in those days. And he just said, pull your trousers up. And he, Three minutes later, Ronnie O'Sullivan was allowed to become a professional snooker player. And the rest, as they say, is history. And the rest, as they say, is history. Thanks to my hairy ass. <laughs> it's quite a story. I mean, it's it's funny how you know some players and, and fighters and um, members of different sports come to you themselves. I know the the, the great uh, the great snooker referee Len Ganley was was heavily involved in in, uh, in your first yeah, meeting with Chris Eubank, for example. Yeah, I mean, Len was you know obviously larger than life character of Northern Ireland and very famous. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a referee as famous as Lin Gann. You know, he was at a time when everything, he was a character. And he phoned me up one day and said, there's a kid up here who wants to meet you. And uh, I was down in Romford in my office and Len was in Sheffield during the World Championships. He, say, he said his name is Eubank, Christopher Eubank. And funnily enough, I'd been watching this kid's career develop. He was about eight and zero, nine and zero, something like that. So I said to Len, well, make a meet and Len arranged all of it and Eubank swanned into the Grosvenor Hotel in Sheffield 
His first line was, my name is Christopher Livingston Eubank. I'm an athlete and I know what I'm worth. And I thought, I love this guy. He had something. You know, as he walked in the room, the lights turned on themselves. And that's the magic I'm always looking for. And again, the rest was history. We know we know Eubank as, as this, uh, you know, he's well able to take a hit and he was well able to take a hit oh, and yeah. give one as well. The, yeah. the, the, the great story about, about um, you know, when he moved up to super middleweight, this fight against Juan Carlos Jimenez in, in Manchester. Yeah. But... Uh, I know you had to go down and meet Chris a few days before that fight in Brighton, and well, um, he was quite sore. Uh, yeah, well, that was that was the weirdest meeting. I mean, Eubank was weird, right? I mean, he's a nutcase, but he's a lovely, actually, he's a lovely, lovely man, and he's honest as the day is nigh. But he's just, you know, he's a character, and he's he's crazy sometimes. And two days before the Jimenez fight in Manchester, he phoned me up, and he always he always struggled to make the weight, and he sounded very weak. And he said, you know, Bazzi, you, you've got to come down and see me in Brighton. So I thought he needed an arm around his shoulder and don't worry, son, you know, two more days and you can you can eat something. So I went down to Brighton to see him and he said, I've got to show you something. He stood up and he, he locked the study door, which I thought was a bit weird. And then he dropped his trousers Then he dropped his underwear. And his manhood was, I won't go into details because it's family programme, but it was massive. And I said, good God. And Eubank said to me, it's not, I know it's not, it's not normally this big. He said, but because I don't have sex a week before a fight and I've been having a little bit of a problem, I got myself circumcised yesterday. I'm like, you've got a fight on Saturday. You've got, cir- you know, you're, you're coming up to 30 years old. It's not a small operation. You've got circumcised. Are you mad? And Eubank said, I know, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry. He said, I took Ronnie Davis, my trainer, with me, with the strict instructions, I can't have any drugs because it might affect my drug test. So I didn't have any. And I said to Ronnie, if I scream out, if they give me any drugs, when I wake up, I'll kill you. He said, so he had a, he was circumcised with a local anaesthetic, which is just like too horrible to think about. And he went out and did 12 rounds with Jimenez who constantly let his punches go a bit low. Fortunately, I'd stuck about three packets of Kleenex tissues down the front of his protector before he went out because I was wincing myself. I said at the end of the fight, what on earth were you thinking of? And he said, Bazza, for what you're paying me, so I go in there with one arm. So there you go. That That's the eccentric character, the Eubank, you know. I, my life was enriched by him, in, in, not just financially, because he was strange, but a wonderful entertainer and a wonderful sportsman, but sometimes a bit crazy. I almost feel like there's a there's a common thread here, Barry, in terms of people you've dealt with that, uh, you know, when they prove themselves to you, almost it, you really appreciate them more, like Eubank getting into the ring after that. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. of you getting into the ring yourself with Eddie when he was younger. Yeah. And even yeah, yeah. another story with, with Stephen Hendry, who couldn't swim for those people who uh, aren't aware. I know. And, and, and a trip to Hong Kong where he proved I himself. Know. But these are all great stories that I, you really appreciated these because of things that they did. I think, you, yeah, you do. I, I set little traps, little little tests, because I want to find out who I'm really, you know, because I'm, I'm good at bullshit, right? So I therefore appreciate other people's bullshit. But I always tell myself the truth. That's the most important person you can tell the truth to is yourself. So when I hear all these people talking things, I've had I've been fortunate enough to be close to them to find out how much you know what type of person are they. So things like Stephen Hendry, interesting, you know, 
I sent Davis up to Scotland when Stephen Hendry first came on the scene. And they wanted a seven-day tour, you know, this young protege against the great Steve Davis. And I said to Davis, go up there and kill him. I don't want him to get a point, not one point. I know it's only an exhibition, so there's not money, but I want you to destroy him every night. I want him to know that while he's, a, while he's alive, while he's breathing, he can't beat you. So I want something in his head. And Davis went up for seven days, absolutely annihilated Hendry. The worst thing we ever did, because Hendry was good enough, had the character to learn from defeat and to improve, and he became a great, great player. Now, when we were in Hong Kong and we were moored half a mile out on this boat, compliments of some Chinese snooker fan that loved Jimmy White, we wanted to go to the beach. So I'm a fairly strong swimmer, not a problem. We all dived in to swim, and Hendry said, I can't swim. So we thought, well, we'll leave you on the boat then. He went, no, no, no. Give me a life jacket and I'll swim with it. And he put a life jacket on and swam. Now, when you can't swim and you're out in the ocean, that takes a bit of bottle. And once again, it's another reason why I knew he was never going to be short of bottle. He went in into a completely alien and, and just had the mental strength to achieve what he wanted to achieve. And you transfer that into sport inside. You know, you've got it. You have it with everyone, you know. Steve Collins, when he boxed Eubank, the story's in the book as well, you know, where he's decided to say that he had been hypnotised and his chin had been hypnotised so that he couldn't be knocked out when he fought Eubank. It completely did Eubank's head in. And it was total rubbish, by the way. I said to Eubank, you can't hypnotise a chin, son. It's a bit of bone. But it did Eubank's head in and it won Collins the fight. So there's different types of ways of looking at people and finding out what have you really got. I like, you know, that's the, that's the analytical part of, of making a personality famous. You've mentioned Steve Collins there, a great Irish fighter. Another, another one that uh, I know is Katie Taylor. And, and there was a great yeah. video of, of yourself, I think, talking to Katie after, the, um, after her first professional fight where you, you were giving her a bit of advice, you know, telling her to keep her feet on the ground, keep your camp around her small. Like how important is someone like that for, for women's sport to have a role model for young girls and, and young boys as well to look up to? I'm, I'm, I'm totally biased because I think Katie Taylor is one of the most special people I've ever met in my life. I just think she is... She's the type of, the, the highest compliment I could pay her. She's the type of girl you'd love to have as your daughter. Now, she's a, an inspiration. She's a professional. She is focused. She's hardworking. She treats herself the same as everybody else, but, she, but she's a winner. I mean, she's got a really tough fight ahead of her against Serrano. Just a week's time, a week and a bit's time, isn't it? It's not too far away. Mm. I can't tell you what she has done for professional boxing, for both, for men and women. And uh, now she's changed the sport on her own. And frankly, if there was an award in Ireland, I don't know whether you make someone queen, then Katie Taylor should get it. She should be the queen of Ireland because she represents the country and her sport better than anyone I've ever seen. Yeah, she's she's quite an incredible, incredible role model. Incredible, incredible. yeah, incredible uh, girl. Barry, you've been you've been fantastic with your time. I, I just have to finish on a, on a, on a, another quote from yourself. And I guess when you're when you're talking about advice for people, and, and this book is going to be, uh, as you said, a legacy, uh, and people can pick it up and read all these great, these fantastic stories. There's a great story as well about Don King telling him to essentially 
head off back to America. I think well able to stand up for yourself. Uh, it's yeah. fair to say. Um, the great quote from you, you: "You said I'm a gold medalist in enthusiasm, but not even bronze in ability." But oh, that's clearly that, that's a great that's a great attitude to take. That you need to be enthusiastic about what you do, and clearly you are. I I think enthusiasm gets you up that hour earlier, uh, makes you don't want to go to sleep because you you haven't finished the job, so you stay. Um, focuses you on achievements. I think it's it's quite nice to get a slap on the back and say, well done. But, you know, the one that always knows whether you've done well is yourself. I don't, I don't kid myself. I'm not perfect. Make a few mistakes. Try to keep them as quiet as possible. Uh, enjoy every second. And looking at the, the people... To see people's lives change through sport has been the most amazing thing of my entire life. To have people that perhaps grew up in an area that similar to where I grew up and to, to change, not just for themselves, but from their family, from their community, to be a focus point, to inspire others. So for me, if I can help that, you know, and with my passion for sport, although, as I said, the ability, listen, I wasn't bad at anything. I wasn't great at anything either. So, you know, bronze medal, uh, maybe not bronze. Fifth or sixth, I'll be there, you know. So it's not bad. But at the same time, it makes me appreciate those who've got special ability and focuses my attention on making sure that we do a good job for everyone. That's It's quite simple. Absolutely. It's a great, uh, great attitude to take. Uh, just a reminder for people, Barry, the book, My Life, Knockouts, Snookers, Bullseyes, Tight Lines and Sweet Deal. People can get it on Amazon, all the good bookstores as well. And as I said, that evening, Tuesday, May 3rd, uh, signed copies of the book, anecdotes of the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield for people who want it as well. But uh, Barry, pleasure to talk to you as always. And uh, we'll great, catch man. up with the Crucible next year, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. Look after yourself. Stay healthy. Yeah.